Well, this morning we will be in Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. You can find our passage on page 883 in the Pew Bible. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, uh, the, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it from, from ourselves from his own lips. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. C.S. Lewis famously, in his book, uh, um, Mere Christianity, which was a collection of uh, essays, talks that he had given, uh, he famously made the argument uh, concerning the divinity of Jesus. He was uh, specifically talking about uh, the, the crowd of people who want to maintain that Jesus was a good teacher and a moral man, but he was yet not the Messiah uh, or the Son of God. And Lewis argues, he says, quote, that that is one thing we must not say about Jesus. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, that, I'm sure, closed the debate uh, way back in the was the 1940s or so, <laughs> so in the, in the early 20th century. Uh, but Jesus continues to be a very divisive person today. One uh, recommendation I always give is if you're talking to, talking to somebody and you're trying to figure out what they believe, simply ask them, what do they believe about Jesus? That's not going to tell you everything, but it's going to tell you a lot. And today we are dealing with people who hate Jesus, especially the Jesus as presented to us in the scriptures. They don't want that Jesus. And so, and so, this, and, and so this text presents to us really two uh, aspects of that hatred. And first is a very intense and, of course, aggressive uh, in, in that there are those who will simply abuse Jesus. And then, and, and, and those are less there's, there's less of those who will just be outright abusive towards Jesus, even today. They're, still, they're out there. They're in plenty of them on the Internet. 
right? But, uh, but there's less people who are just outright abusive. But there are far more people who may not abuse Jesus, but they will reject Jesus nonetheless. And so we're going to consider those two aspects today. Uh, and, and so first, uh, we note here that when it comes to uh, Jesus, that there are some who will simply abuse Jesus, as we see in verses 63 to 65. And the abuse of the guards concerning Jesus, now these are Jewish guards that are holding Jesus, and, uh, and Luke uh, here, he omits the kind of uh, the informal questioning that happened in the night in the house of Caiaphas. Other gospels describe that. Uh, but Luke does include the, the abuse that the, that the, um, that the guards give, give, uh, give to Jesus, and they mock him. And, and really, this mockery is a, is a presentation, particularly from the guards here, is a false strength. There's a false strength to mockery. And, uh, you know, they, the, the men, they, you know, they're guarding him, and they say, hey, this guy's condemned. There's no way this guy's walking out of here. Let's have some fun with him. All right, so they want to play a game. They want to play a sadistic version of blind man's bluff. And so they blindfold him and punch him and demand him, tell them which one had hit him, and they heaped other abuses on him. Now, actually, Jewish law did not allow for the public, uh, well, sorry, Jewish, uh, Jewish law did allow for the public beating and, and flogging of guilty, condemned persons, but not before the trial. It was after. And so the, the men here are clearly in violation of their own laws, according to uh, the rabbis. Uh, but, uh, but given that their superiors hate Jesus and want Jesus dead, they're not really in danger of, uh, of, of being held accountable here. So they don't really care. Now, to mock another requires the assumption that you are in a very safe position, both ideologically and physically. You know, you notice that. You know, the mocking, there's so much more mocking online why? Because you can't reach through the computer and throttle that person, right? So it's a lot more mockery going online. Uh, and you notice that uh, people don't generally mock a, a, a big, strong man. They don't do that. If they do, they have some secret confidence about why they're safe to do so. Or we would say that person's crazy because they're going to get killed or hurt and put in the hospital. And so the... so. Uh, and this mocking of Jesus, it occurs here. Obviously, the guards are in a completely safe position. There's no threat that Jesus poses to them. And so they have all the, uh, the momentary uh, physical power in that, in that, in that, act, in that moment. And, um, but we still see the mockery of Christ today. We see the mockery of Christ. There is no shortage of it. There are countless individuals who rage against God who, uh, and Jesus who make silly petty attacks against Jesus and, and God and the Bible. Uh, it's interesting when you're a young Christian, you come across these for the first time. You're like, whoa, what's that? And then you go look at it and you find an answer to it. And you're like, okay, you know, and so, um, but uh, if, if, I, if, if I had a nickel for every time somebody threw out the, uh, you know, um, well, if you're a Christian, then you better not eat shellfish uh, objection. I would be a wealthy, wealthy man. It's just now it's, it's like sometimes these objections and petty arguments get thrown at you. You're like, oh, okay, All right? Like you think you're clever, but you're not. Uh, and, and so, you know, so, but you still hear. You can go to freshman, uh, you know, um, philosophy courses and hear things like, can God make a rock that he can't lift? 
Uh, or since evil is in the world, God can't exist. This was essentially Christopher Hitchens, uh, the, he's now the deceased uh, atheist. That was basically his one argument, and he would just do a thousand variations of it. He'd write books, and it was just variations of that same point. Bad, thing hap- bad things happen, therefore there is no God. That was it. And it's like, yeah, are there hard difficulties that we have to wrestle with as that? It's like, but dude, you're like, it's the, 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 the Christianity's been around for a while. And it's not like somebody just thought up the problem of evil. It's just like, oh, I didn't know that existed until this moment. You brilliant, brilliant scholar. No one has ever thought about this or ever answered it or ever. No one else. So don't even bother looking. Just throw it out there and just crow and puff up your chest, right? Um, Or people will come to you and say, when are you going to act like an adult and give up believing these stupid fairy tales? Right? Can you, can you, my favorite one is this one, and, and Richard Dawkins liked to pull this one out. He would, he would go to somebody, he'd talk to somebody, he'd say, so, so you really believe, you really believe that a man was born of a virgin, died, and was raised from the dead? You really believe that? I love that question because he's just asking a question. And, and, if, and if he's asked me the question, I would say, yes, I do, Right? Because let me put it in another tone. Do you really believe that a man was born of a virgin, died, and was raised from the dead? Yes, we do. Right? It's like he, all he's doing is just being nasty with his tone. <laughs> he's just being sneering with his tone. But it, it just So stepping back and saying, okay, well, you're not actually making an accusation. You clearly don't believe it. But all you're doing is stating a fact. It was like, do you really believe that you drove in a car to here to get here to church today? Do you really believe that? You know, just heaping scorn. You're like, yes, I believe that, right? Yes, because that's what happened, right? And so, and we're not saying everybody was born of a virgin. We're actually saying it's quite unique, right? No one's ever done it except for one guy, right? So, so we're not saying this is something that is ordinary or observable, like repeatable. This is the fact that, the fact that it's unrepeatable, that it is rare. It speaks to the unique nature of this one person, and you should probably listen to what he has to say, right? So, so if you so if you be, so don't don't be thrown off when you hear the mocking coming at you or the tone or so just step back. My grandfather would always say, just just step back and take the emotion out of it, right? He was saying that you know, we get worked out. Just let me let me ask what actually just happened, right? And then and just say, okay, they just don't believe, all right? They're upset about something, or, you know, whatever it is. But I bring I bring this up because the mocking of Jesus is not new. Not new. We just, re- we just read about it. And it's continued on ever since. The mocking of Jesus isn't new, and therefore it shouldn't rile us up. Jesus plainly told us that, that the world hates the church, hates Christians, hates us, because it hates him. So what did we expect? Right? But also, it's interesting, uh, we need to think about what blasphemy reveals. Luke says that they were blaspheming Jesus in verse 65. The, the word blasphemy literally means to verbally abuse. Now, it's, now verbal abuse doesn't mean it, it's translated variously. when it, it depends on who it's applied to. It's not always blasphemy. Like, if I verbally abuse you, I'm not blaspheming you. I'm just being a jerk, right? <laughs> like, I, I'm reviling you, disparaging you, like, but I'm not blaspheming you. It becomes blasphemy when it's applied to the divine. And so, at the very least, in Luke's estimation, this has been a historic understanding. 
he understands Jesus to be the divine son of God. He understands Jesus to be divine, to be God. And thus he says he is being blasphemed. And that's, that's how it's used in the Gospels. Every, if you look up every instance of the use of this word in the Gospels, it's used in the sense of blaspheming God. Now, in, in, now in the letters, in the book of Acts, later it, it is used when persecutors attack the apostles and the church for their faith in Jesus. They revile, they, 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 they verbally abuse the church and Christians and the apostles because of their faith in Christ. But the blasphemy against Jesus highlights for us, first, his divinity as the Son of God. It further highlights the fact that they, that they were indeed reviling him as a prophet, and in doing so, they were actually fulfilling the prophecies concerning the suffering servant who would be reviled by his own people. It is as Jesus said to uh, to Paul in, his, his, in, his, in Paul's conversion, where, he, where he, he, these, these soldiers are simply kicking against the goads of God's divine plan of redemption. <coughs> One of the wonderful things about Jesus is that even those who would declare the most horrible attacks against him, his church, and the gospel are only in the end proving them all true. They're all merely confirming the word of God and so, and, and so when we meet someone who is, you know, essentially irrationally lashing out, saying terrible things about Jesus, you know, we don't need to clutch our pearls. We don't need to wrap ourselves up in self-righteous offense, right? We need to pray for them, do good to them, and overcome evil with good as we were commanded. And why? Well, because the guy who is, he, who is so angry at God and, and spewing all this hatred, it, it's, it, it's, it's not going to change anything about, uh, about how he views the cross and salvation if I just return evil for evil. But I can pray for God to open his eyes, to soften his heart. I can pray for the love of God to make him alive and to call him to faith. I can demonstrate the love of Christ. And, and the example of Christ and how I interact with him. And so there was a while back, I, I met a teaching elder who used to be a professional uh, mixed martial arts uh, fighter. Now his body is essentially kind of broken from that experience and he actually ri rides around daily on a motorized scooter. Um, but he's a huge dude and he's planting a church in South Florida. And, and one of the things he started doing was he, would, he was going to share the gospel uh, with a lack of a better phrase, a pimp, <laughs> on the corner uh, in, a, in a hard part of town. And so he pulled up in his car and, and was talking to the guy, trying to talk to the guy outside the car, and within about a minute, the man was cursing all manner of profanities and blasphemies at him, and, and so he drives, him, drives off. And, and so he comes back the next day, tries to talk to the guy, and again, and the same interaction, same experience ensues. And, uh, and so then he comes back the third day, and, and before he's even got the window rolled down, the guy's already swearing at him. <laughs> and, uh, and he's not oaths and vows swearing either. He's given, the, given him the choice language. And then he, and he gets the window down, and the guy says, what do you want? And, he, and the pastor held out a bag, and he said, I bought you breakfast. And he said the guy just, his head just hung down. And he began to weep. 
Now, I don't know what's the end result of that interaction, that relationship, or if he came to faith and renounced his evil ways. Uh, and, and I'm not recommending that you go riding the streets looking for similar interactions. But what I, I bring it up simply to remind us that the vileness that spews forth from people's mouths about Christ, about God, about the Savior, about the Bible, about Christianity, it reveals not anything about you or the church or those things, but about that person, about their experience, about what they believe, about what's going on inside them. We don't need to respond in kind. We don't even need to explain or defend the faith at times. There's times where we must defend the faith. The Apostle Peter told us to be prepared to it. But there's also, you know, there's also truth to, uh, you know, the uh, Charles Spurgeon who said, I, you know, uh, I, I don't necessarily need to defend the Bible because the Bible's like a lion. <laughs> it, kind of, it kind of devours everyone else. So, uh, so um, but it's just meaning that it's not up to me or else the whole thing's going to collapse. All right, that's, that's what I mean there. Is that maybe in that moment, you don't have to give the defense in that particular moment, but that time will come. Maybe when they ask, maybe when, you know, maybe we need to be silent for a while and just serve and love, and then they'll ask. And other times we do need to speak up when we do need to declare. And it's hard to know exactly when, but that's why we pray and we trust that the Lord will give us the words and the timing. But we are, in every instance, called to love and to speak in love and to act in love. Thankfully, not everyone is like this, but we do recognize that some will abuse Jesus, uh, but many will reject Jesus. This is where Jesus comes uh, before the, the leaders of the, um, uh, of the Sanhedrin, basically, which is the leaders of the Jewish people. And, uh, and the, ir- the great irony here is that they're asking the right question in their, in their interrogation of Jesus here. And, and the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem are, are, are asking the right question. As, you know, C.S. Lewis noted earlier, the most important question that we need to ask is, is Jesus Lord? That's the question. Is Jesus the Christ? If he is, then that means that the promises of God had, that, 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 that God has given to us in the covenant are becoming true, are coming true right before their very eyes, if he is the Christ. The promises that God made through Jeremiah to bring forth a new covenant. The promise that God made through Ezekiel and David to bring forth that true eternal king and kingdom through David's line. The promise that God made through Moses that he would come and circumcise the hearts of his people. The promise that God made through Abraham to make for himself a people and to give them a place where he would dwell with them and rule over them forever. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve that he would one day bring forth one from, from Eve to crush the serpent and to undo all the wrong that he, had brought, that he had done. Even now, today, it is the right question. Is Jesus the Christ? And if we think he might be, well, then it's worth us looking into it, Right? I still always go back to the pastor who would go around and he would talk to people and he would ask them, especially unbelievers, he'd say, hey, what, what, what odds would you give that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? And he said, you'd be shocked how many people would say 
All right, he was like, how about one in 10? One in 100, one in 1,000, how about that? If it was those odds, is it worth six weeks of your life to check it out and to come to your own conclusion? <laughs> just, like, just like, yeah, if you had those odds to win the lottery, which 50, 50, one in 10, one in 100, one in 1,000, would you do it? It's like, this is like the eternal lottery, right? <laughs> you know, what's a, what do you want to do? And so would you take six weeks and check it out? And if, we, and if we do believe, if we say 100%, in fact, I say he is my Lord even, then are we living in light of that reality? Does our life reflect his lordship? Or, do, or, or, do we, or would people be really confused by how we live Monday to Saturday? And so they're asking the right question, but the reality is they are unwilling to hear the answer. Jesus doesn't simply come right out and say directly and affirmatively that he is the Christ right there. But he doesn't deny it either. He simply implies, he says, you say that I am. He implies that you're right. You say that I am and you're correct. He's affirming it, but indirectly. And he does it because they were asking the question in bad faith. And that's why Jesus answers the way he does. He even says, he says, look, if I answer you directly, you're not going to believe Right. And to, and if I and if I ask you some some pointed questions, you're not going to answer. Honestly, we already tried that. Remember when I asked you about John the Baptist and I asked you whether or not his baptism was from heaven or from men. And you went and huddled up and you were in there and going, all right, well, but we don't believe it's from heaven. But we're, if we say it's from men, then everybody will kill us. Uh, but if we say it's uh, but uh, and so but if we say it from heaven, then we have to admit that Jesus is right. And so we're, we're, well, tell him we don't know, right? And then he says, and so, yeah, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things, right? Since you won't answer the question. He calls them out for their unwillingness, their bad faith. And still, how often that is the response today. There are so many, if you tell them, if you show them the convincing proofs, if you take away every obstacle and objection, and you lead them right there. It comes, it'll come down to one fundamental thing. They'll say, I just can't do it. I can't believe it. I can't, I, I, I won't believe it. And honestly, it, it's it, in part, it's because they don't want to. It's, it, it's as one famous atheist put it, he says, look, he says, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he, he just goes, look. I don't want there to be a God. He said, I don't believe there's a God because I'm an atheist. But also, I don't want there to be a God because that makes me morally accountable. That makes demands of me and my life that I don't want to give up. And, and, and I don't want to live in a world where there's a God. I, can't, I, I don't want to that, so I deny that reality. You know, there's another atheist, uh, um, uh, and when he was in a debate, actually it was Christopher Hitchens I mentioned earlier, he was in a debate with some Christian scholars and apologists, and, and, and in the middle of the debate, he finally kind of lost his cool and just angrily just said, he, he says, I will not be told what to do. And I was like, that, there it is. There it is. And that's also the same sin of Adam. I will not be told what to do. I determine my destiny. I'm the captain of my soul. When in reality, when we stand and we look around, we realize I'm not the captain of anything. 
This is not to say that people don't have intellectual objections to Christianity or to Jesus um, uh, being the Messiah. Rather, it is to say that at the most fundamental level, people don't believe because they just don't want to. The hardest obstacle to faith in Jesus Christ, to believing the promises of the gospel, is not questions about the Bible, questions about the flood, questions about hard to reconcile uh, texts. The hardest obstacle is the will of fallen man that denies the truth of God and exchanges it for a lie. A lie that we love. The lie that says all you got to do is to gratify yourself in the pleasures of the world and get enough of that, get the right combination of that, and you'll find happiness. You don't need all this religion stuff. But it doesn't work. Now, some people find that lie, honestly, in a legalistic form of Christianity, defined almost exclusively by rule checking or uh, box checking and rule keeping. Some people find it uh, in, in gratifying whatever physical, uh, uh, emotional desire comes across their plate. But all of it leads to emptiness, sorrow, and loss. Oddly enough, it leads to a lot of people who will go these routes and then end up shaking their fist at God because they feel empty inside. And they blame God for it. But God uses that emptiness at times to open the eyes of fallen men and women to the needs of their souls and the reality of the great love and mercy of God that he has given to them to meet that need in his son, Jesus Christ. And so some may abuse Christ. Many will reject Christ. The scriptures say it. We see it modeled right here for us in this text. But as the people of God, we confess that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, as Jesus says, who is seated at the right hand of the power of God. After his death, he was raised by the dead, by God, from the dead by God's power, and he ascended into heaven. From there he rules, and he will come again. That picture of him high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, it's interesting because that's the very picture the very vision of Christ that the martyr deacon Stephen saw just before he was killed in the book of Acts. Jesus as the Son of Man fulfills the prophecy spoken of in the Old Testament about the Son of Man who has come to do what we could not, to reconcile sinners with God and to bring into fulfillment all the promises of the covenant. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, He's the Son of Man and the Son of God because he said he was. He demonstrated that he is. He is the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who though he was very God, uh, he took to his being, to himself, a human nature, enduring the humiliation of the cross for our sake. He is the Son of God given to us in the particular way of God's love that whoever would believe in him, no matter how great a sinner that man or woman or child may be, they would be saved. Even more, they will have eternal life in the kingdom of God. And we are given in the scriptures an object lesson to this whole thing with the Apostle Paul. And I bring up the Apostle Paul here not because it's just famous or because we know who he is, because there you have an abuser 
and a rejecter. Right? Paul says in 1 Timothy that he was once a murderer, a blasphemer, and a violent man. How was Paul, the most, you know, the most Jewish, uh, the most Hebrew of Hebrews, the most Pharisee of Pharisees, how was he a blasphemer? Because he blasphemed Christ. And he blasphemed God the Father because he blasphemed Christ. He was a blasphemer and a violent man. He did violence to the church. He was a rejecter of the gospel. But then Christ came to him and struck him to the ground and blinded him, revealing his own spiritual blindness. But then what did Christ do? He spoke to him. He spoke to him. And he called him to his faith and service and suffering in the name of Jesus. And Paul says, that he was saved, that part of the reason, a big part of the reason God saved him was so that he would be proof, he'd be living proof that anyone who entrusts themselves to the Savior, Jesus Christ, will be saved. Now, we may be here today and we, and we would say with great confidence and truth that we would never say such terrible things about Jesus as we see here from the guards who abused him, from the leaders of the Jewish people who rejected him. Even so, I doubt we would say that we honor Jesus as he deserves in our lives. But the beautiful thing is that our salvation is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent upon our effort or even the quality of our faith. Even as repentance and faith are indeed necessary for salvation, our salvation depends entirely on the quality of character, and power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, and he is perfect. And so know the next time that someone abuses you for the sake of Christ, that they have done no damage to that which is eternal and lasting, that is the most val valuable to you. Indeed, they may in fact actually end up like Saul the persecutor, who became Paul the Apostle. But at the end of the day, we have to know, as we walk out the door, as we go into the week, the week there will be some who will abuse Christ, there will be many who reject Christ, but all must contend with that great question, is Jesus the Son of Man, the Son of God? And if He is, will we receive Him as Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus is our Savior. And Lord, it pains us to read these texts where our blessed Savior is abused, mistreated. It's angering to read how, what they say and how they treat him. Yet also there is a rightness to that pain because we love him. And Lord, that's what we want. We want more people to love Jesus. We want more abusers of Jesus Christ today to come to faith in him. We want more Saul's to become Paul's. We want more people who reject Christ to become ardent believers in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would entrust any abuses or opposition or insults or reviling that we receive. May we hand them to you. And know that it's not about us. And may we entrust ourselves to you 
for you judge justly. May we entrust those who, um, who, who profane your name and even profane us. May we entrust them to you. That you, in due time you will bring them to conviction and faith. And if not, you will judge justly. So, Father, may we, re- may we recognize that we are always in a position of strength. Because, not because we are strong, but because we are in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we go out from here today. That we would go out here with confidence, not in ourselves, but in our Savior. Confidence not in our word, but in yours. Confidence not in our message, but in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which cannot be destroyed, which cannot be broken, which will not fall to the ground, but will continue forth until the fullness of your word comes in, until the fullness of your kingdom comes in, and you accomplish all your blessed and glorious purposes. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us, work through us, in the lives of those around us, and may you be glorified in us, even as we, put, we have to deal with abuse and rejection, and abuse and rejection of that which we hold most dear, our wonderful Savior Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.